Created Terrain, a production of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, a ministry dedicated to teaching people how to work together to fulfill the mandate God gave the human race in Genesis 1.28, to multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it by enhancing its fruitfulness, beauty, and safety, to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. I'm Cal Beisner, president of the Cornwall Alliance. People send all kinds of questions to us here at the Cornwall Alliance. Mostly, they're pretty well focused on our main mission, educating the public and policymakers on biblical earth stewardship, economic development for the poor, and the gospel of Christ. Sometimes they're not, but they're still interesting, and when they're at least tangentially related to that mission, we like to share our answers with others, too, just in hopes that they'll be helpful. Well, here's one. Someone wrote, I just got this exchange from some friends. It began by quoting Alan Dershowitz, who said, Instead of starting each school day with a prayer, why don't we start each school day with the recitation of the First Amendment? Then the teacher can explain why prayer is a private matter for the home, the church, or the mind. His daughter, a liberal lawyer, responded, I would love that. Good luck getting the evangelical base on board. And the fellow who wrote to me then added this. It seems to me that at least some evangelicals might agree with Dershowitz. In many ways, requirement of rote prayer degrades prayer. Am I wrong? Now, it's a very thoughtful question on a pretty complex issue. Alan Dershowitz is a legendary constitutional lawyer and law professor who has stood up for freedom on behalf of many victims of both government and private oppression. His simple solution seems attractive at first, but deeper consideration suggests that it has some problems. I suspect, in fact, that lots of evangelicals would agree with Dershowitz, though of course it would take a properly constructed poll of a representative sample to determine what percentage. I wouldn't be among them, for several reasons. First, The private-public dichotomy has all kinds of problems, starting with how to define each. It's pretty clear what private property and public property mean. The former is property belonging to an individual or group of individuals, the latter property belonging to a civil government. Yet, we've blurred that distinction, leading to all kinds of conflicts, by defining some privately owned property as public accommodation— and therefore subject to the government's determining how it can be used rather than the owners determining it. Uh, No doubt this came from good intentions. We don't want restaurant owners excluding blacks or Native Americans or whites or Jews or Hindus or whoever. But that has resulted in lots of legal conflicts that could have been avoided had we left it to private property owners to determine who might come on their property and who might not, and to live with the consequences of, well, for example, reduced customer base and therefore reduced income. But while it's pretty clear what private property and public property mean, it's not at all clear what it means to call prayer private. Private, from the Latin privare, to deprive, denotes something from which some people are deprived access. But what does it mean to deprive someone of access to prayer? A second, Dershowitz, much of whose work I highly admire, lists home, church, and mind as private. But that seems to work from a very different definition of private from private property. Further, if prayer is a private matter for the home, the church, or the mind, 
then does that mean it can't be engaged in outside the home, the church, and the mind? In other words, that while silent prayer, by definition restricted to the mind, might happen anywhere, vocal prayer is permissible only at home or in church? What about in a religious school, hospital, or other institution? What about in a board or employees meeting of a privately held non-religious, a troubling term in itself, business, or in a gathering of members of a sports team or symphony, or when a volunteer first responder or a sheriff's deputy or a government ambulance service EMT reaches an accident scene and, while applying a tourniquet, prays, even horror of horrors, aloud for a victim. But further, prayer is most certainly, and here is my third uh, problem with Dershowitz's approach, Prayer is most certainly an exercise of religion, and the First Amendment not only forbids the government from making any law respecting an establishment of religion, but also forbids it to make a law denying the free exercise thereof. Originally, that applied only to Congress, the legislative branch of the federal government, but then by the incorporation theory of the 14th Amendment, it came to be understood to apply to the state, county, and municipal legislatures as well a dubious expansion that undoubtedly mistakes the intent of the authors of the First Amendment, since, after all, when they wrote it and the states adopted it, nine of the thirteen states had established churches. At any rate, prayer being an exercise of religion, I think it's abundantly clear that, whether restricted to Congress as the legislative body of the federal government, or expanded to apply to state, county, and municipal legislatures, the First Amendment was never intended to and does not now prohibit prayers as part of government functions, regardless how wise or foolish someone thinks it might be to use them in such settings. And the fact that all kinds of governmental meetings, from Congress, for example, the U.S. House of Representatives chaplain opens each day with prayer, as does the Senate's chaplain, down to town councils have begun with prayers, even down to today, indicates that even now, constitutional law doesn't forbid prayer in meetings of government bodies. Indeed, at the start of each session of the Supreme Court, the marshal recites this prayer, God save the United States in this honorable court. But restricting prayer to home, church, and mind is certainly denying the free exercise thereof. Uh, as an aside, I just discovered this rather interesting remark at the website of the Senate chaplain, Quote, throughout the years, the United States Senate has honored the historic separation of church and state, but not the separation of God and state. Unquote. Interesting point. Offering in a government function a prayer because a given church requires it there would surely violate the Establishment Clause. But prayer itself, in a government function, needn't, even if the specific prayer consists of words used for prescribed prayers by a particular church, uh, violate the Establishment Clause. The whole text of the webpage of the Senate Chaplain's Office makes pretty fascinating reading. Well, those issues aside, does the requirement in any setting of rote prayer degrade prayer? Well, by definition, Rote is the use of memory usually with little intelligence, or mechanical or unthinking routine or repetition, according to uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary. And as such, it degrades prayer, or any other expression for that matter. Jesus said, 
And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. That's Matthew 6, 7. But recitation of prescribed prayer needn't be wrote, as the history of prayer in every religious tradition, whether Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, etc., sufficiently reveals. One may recite a prescribed prayer thoughtlessly or thoughtfully. What degrades prayer is not using prescribed words, but the thoughtlessness of someone reciting those words, whether vocally or only mentally, just as what makes prayer genuine is not whether the words are prescribed, but the thoughtfulness of the one praying. I strongly suspect, by the way, that God save the United States in this honorable court is typically said as rote prayer, so perhaps that does degrade it. But who knows, maybe sometimes the marshal who recites it really believes and means it. Oh no, if he does, does that violate the Establishment Clause right there in the Supreme Court? Well, frankly, I think those worried that permitting vocal prayers in the public schools are afraid they might actually have some effect. They see such prayers as a threat to their own secularism. Is secularism religious, by the way? Well, certainly. It has its own views about God. There is none. The universe, it sprang out of nothing by chance in the Big Bang. Man, not different in principle from amoebas. Morality, there are no absolutes. And the afterlife, there is none. Uh, and indeed, in an often cited footnote to a 1961 decision, Torcaso v. Watkins, the Supreme Court listed secular humanism as one of several non-theistic religions practiced in this country. Others might see public prayers as a threat to the faith of their children who are in the schools or whatever. I don't see any particular reason why government should kowtow to their fears by denying the free exercise of religion for everyone else, while establishing non-theistic religion by doing so. Short answer, then. Prohibiting prayer by public employees on the job, including teachers in government-run schools, denies their free exercise of religion and so violates the First Amendment. It also violates something with much greater authority than the First Amendment, namely the First Commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 3. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego apparently felt no obligation to refrain from prayer, vocal and visible, despite the commands of the lawful authority where they lived in exile in Babylon. Now there's a distinct question. Do I think it's wise to have prayer in public schools? Generally, I'd leave that up to the individuals. That is, I'd leave it to individual teachers to decide whether they're going to pray vocally during their classes. Uh, no doubt many do silently. I'd leave it to individual students to decide whether they want to pray vocally at school, whether in class or out of it. I don't see a role for anyone to forbid anyone else from praying vocally, so long as the vocal praying doesn't interfere with the business at hand, just as ordinary speech can be restricted so it doesn't interfere with the business at hand. But as someone who doesn't think we should have government-run schools at all, I say just eliminate government-run schooling and you eliminate the problem. After all, who in his right mind ever thought it made any sense whatsoever to entrust to the government the shaping of the minds of the people by whose consent it's supposed to govern? Government schooling and consent of the governed are, in principle, incompatible. 
even if historically it takes a while for that incompatibility to become obvious. Thanks for listening. As we often do, we'll have links in the show notes to the various sources cited in this program. Have a question you'd like us to address in Created Terrain, preferably a question closely related to biblical earth stewardship, economic development for the poor, or the gospel of Christ? Send it to us at stewards at cornwallalliance.org, and we'll do our best to give you a sound answer. Meanwhile, if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about us, share us on your social media, and please prayerfully consider supporting us financially, which you can do quickly at cornwallalliance.org slash donate. Until next time, keep striving to fulfill the dominion mandate by enhancing the earth's fruitfulness, beauty, and safety to the glory of God and the benefit of your neighbors, and may you grow steadily in grace and in the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Savior.